Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. I've entitled this message, His Father's Name, from the passage itself. Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Hear now the word of God. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are they, these are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And then their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would grasp this morning just why it was that John, by your spirit, would reveal these words to us, this grand throne room of God, the Lamb and Mount Zion. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be filled with a boldness and assurance and a sense that your divine and sovereign hand governs all things. Help us, Father, to have an increased understanding of your might, of your love, of your grace, and of your governing of those things, even the most minute details of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this year, in the city of New Orleans, a new statue was erected. The name of the statue is Sentinel. But the, uh, the erecting of the statue actually inaugurated the image of Mami Wata in the very popular Louisiana city. Now, this became national news because Sentinel replaced the Robert E. Lee statue, which had been in that location. So that was torn down, and we have a new one put up. It was thought that Robert E. Lee had stood as a monument for power, domination, tyranny, and white supremacy. And it was appropriate to counter that message with Mama, Mommy Wata. Now, this new image, which is a naked, spoon-shaped female statue engulfed by a serpent, is a water deity and a symbol of status in the Zulu culture. Apparently, in an effort to declare the evils of hierarchies established under somebody like a Robert E. Lee, the monument was not on a pedestal, but put on the ground so that it would be closer to the people. I do recall being fairly routinely criticized by my um, unbelieving friends that Paul's words in Romans chapter 1 could possibly apply to the modern, more sophisticated, well-educated citizen. Paul's words are here. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Of course, John Calvin said that the mind of the natural man is an idle factory. We just are inherently religious, and if we're not going to serve the true God, we're going to find some God to serve. And this idolatry generally involves thoughts behind whatever false images represent. Even back in the day, these images that they would create, nobody really thought that they were actually going to be creating a, a deity. But it was what was behind the image, the thought behind the image that made a difference. We read an explanation of that in Psalm 115, 6 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Friends, you know, I mentioned, you know, this mommy wata, and maybe you scoff, I don't know. I'm not sure what that evokes in your thinking. But I think we would be foolish to underestimate the significance of a statue like this in our midst. Especially since the artist who made it will be representing the United States in the Venice Biennale, which is a very prestigious art exhibit coming up. It's a very prestigious person, a very highly visible representative of our country. But leaving that behind, I think there's some basic questions that need to be asked. I mean, this, I'm not making this up. This is actually put up in one of the bigger cities in our country. One of the questions I would ask is, what is the mechanism by which Mami Wata informs me that things like abuse of power, self-seeking domination, tyranny, and white supremacy are actually wrong? How is this idol going to tell me that? You see, I believe that the scriptures teach those things to be wrong. In black and white, God has made these things clear to the most elementary person who's capable of reading the Bible. But how is this image going to convey that information to me? You see, the artist sought to help the image by putting the image on the ground rather than on a pedestal. But that's the artist's message, not Mami Wata's message. How does Mami Wata tell me what is good and right and true? And what sacrifices does this deity require? Virtually all deities require a sacrifice one way or another, many of them human sacrifices. I mean, if you study religion, you understand that most animistic sacrifice, uh, religions require some type of sacrifice, and many of them human sacrifices. I mean, we make jokes about throwing virgins in volcanoes, but these are things that have actually taken place throughout the course of human history. So what does this particular idol require? You know, it's not uncommon for many people to decry all the sacrifices that God requires in the Old Testament. 
But what we have to understand is these sacrifices were types. They were anticipatory of God himself sending his own son as a sacrifice for sin. They all taught us of the sacrifice God would make by sending a son. They all taught us about the sacrifice the son would make in rescuing us from sin and death. Well, what does this idol require? And what does it promise? In other words, how does this particular idol that we've erected in our land redeem people? What is the method of redemption? How does that happen? Now, a lot more could be said at this juncture, but we must have, we've got to move on here. And I'm going to explain to you in a minute why I open with this particular piece of news. But I just want to end this introduction with what I think to be a really appropriate quote from G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton wrote, When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. Now, I open with this, not just out of thin air, because as we enter into chapter 14 of Revelation, we're going to see a, a juxtaposition of Rome and its claims of divine sovereignty against the true Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion. That's the comparison we're going to see. We're going to see a comparison of the Roman Empire and its claims of divinity, its claims of deity, over and against the true Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion. As I was listening to Dr. Greg Bonson on this, he put it in very mundane and crass terms when we were comparing 13 to 14. He said, you need to choose your poison. Are you going to serve man or are you going to serve God? What we're going to see in these verses is John recording what he sees, what he hears, and then what he identifies. First, what he sees. Verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. John had it one way or another in these visions felt the force of this iniquitous trinity of chapter 13, the dragon, the beast of the land, and the beast of the sea. And if you recall correctly, the beast of the land appeared as a lamb, but spoke as a what? Anybody remember? A dragon. So you've got this presentation in chapter 13 of this dark trinity of the devil and the beast of the sea and the beast of the land, and the beast of the land promoting the beast of the sea as if the beast of the sea is a god, and he appears as a lamb, but he speaks as a dragon, he speaks as a liar. But here, we have the true lamb of God. Understand what we, were, what we learned in chapter 13. We have a demonic government being promoted by a demonic religion. And this environment that they were in demanded allegiance through the threat of death. You will get on board through threat of death. You know, that was the Roman Empire in the first century, and there have been many empires since who would have the same threat upon its citizens. The 20th century is full of tyrants and despots who rejected the triune God and imposed this same threat upon their citizens. But going back to the first century, 
to the audience that heard this, they were dying. We read in Romans chapter 8, they were being killed all day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's the environment in which this letter is written. See, chapter 13 crescendos with a description of the overwhelming power and authority of this darkness. The power to perform great signs, the construction of some type of speaking image we spoke of last time, and the warning that failure to acknowledge the state as the pinnacle of all authority would jettison you from that which was necessary to survive in the culture. In other words, if you don't acknowledge the state as the ultimate authority, you couldn't buy and you couldn't sell. You wouldn't be able to function in society. And that acknowledgement was presented by way of taking a mark, the mark of the beast, either on your hand or on your forehead. And as we discussed last time, the hand on the forehead indicates what you believe and how you behave, who you would bow to and who you would serve. And that is put before the audience here, the readers, and it's put before us as well. Chapter 13 presents an overwhelming enemy. If you and I were Roman citizens in the first century, we would look at the power of that government and think to ourselves, we have no chance until you read chapter 14. Chapter 14 changes everything. You see, in chapter 14, we don't see a false lying lamb, but the true lamb. And where is he standing? He's standing on Mount Zion. Well, if you look up Mount Zion, you're going to see a lot of things. But what Mount Zion actually came to represent was that which symbolized the heart and the hope of God's children. Mount Zion is his true church. It is the church we come to fellowship with and worship with every Lord's Day. In his efforts to strengthen the Hebrew Christians in the midst of apostasy, the the epistle to the Hebrews was written. The, The Hebrew Christians were departing and going back to you know, what they felt comfortable with. And the author of Hebrews seeks to direct the hearts of the saints to the celestial nature of our worship. You see, we're not merely worshiping with one another in a provided building. And we're not even worshiping with one another as struggling Christians getting together. It includes that. But it's much more than that. I think we have a very truncated understanding of what happens when we gather together in worship. Our minds are to be swept heavenward in this gathering. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, For we have come, we, not just them, but we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. That's where we are right now in this worship. 
to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. That is, that is what we are part of right now. It is no stretch to say that the intimidating presentation of the power of Rome in chapter 13 pales in comparison to the power of the Lamb standing upon Mount Zion, found in chapter 14. I guess I would stop here. I'd want to stop here, and it would be my prayer that the eyes of our hearts could merely begin to perceive that heavenly Jerusalem. That, that, that we would have our eyes open to see, as it were, the chariots of fire by which we are surrounded. We, we're conveyed that here by the word of God, but that is the reality of the situation in which we currently find ourselves. And I think people who extract themselves from the visible church are extracting themselves from that event. And the Lamb, as we read, doesn't stand alone, but the Lamb is with the 144,000. He's, uh, he's accompanied by that innumerable throng that we read of in chapter 7. <clears throat> all, of the, all of the elect are with him. And they do not have the mark of the beast but rather the Father's name written on their foreheads. And you can ask yourself, do you have the Father's name written on your foreheads? Because, friends, it's not a tattoo. It is a, it is a sign. It is a mark of who owns you. Who owns you? Who, who has bought you? Who has purchased you? Who has ransomed you? Have you been ransomed by the blood of Christ? then you are in that number. You are one of those people standing, as it were, with the Lamb on Mount Zion. I think the faithful reading this throughout the course of history should include themselves in that number. As our Lord prepares our hearts for the inevitable difficulties and tribulations, which will no doubt beset us, and for some of us, we are in this very moment. Let us recognize the formidableness of those powers by which we are surrounded and supported. Know know your environment as the scriptures teach it. Because whether the antagonist is some ancient government or a modern government, whether the antagonist is an illness or potential destitution, economic or social collapse, whether the antagonist is your own mental or psychological vulnerability and your inability to overcome the way you feel about things, your own sadness and sorrow and depression. Whatever it is, it all pales in comparison to chapter 14. If our eyes were open to see chapter 14, all of the things that seem to be so difficult in our lives would no longer be difficult. I would argue that anybody who's nurtured and sought to advance an intimacy 
with the God who beckons us to call Him Father, while at the same time He remains Almighty, our Father, who art in heaven. Such a big statement in such a few words. The, 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 you know, it's the, it's the, the God who is imminent, the God who is here, but the God is a transcendent, our Father. He's here, who art in heaven, who's there. And anybody who has sought to nurture intimacy with that God, I think, can take rank in a very experiential way, in a very existential way, in terms of the way you govern your life, the way you feel about your life, with John Laird Mayer, on whose grave in Westminster Abbey it is written, he feared man so little because he feared God so much. I believe this is the sentiment and the intent of the verses before us, that we have such a high view of God that even something as powerful as the Roman Empire is not to be feared. Now what does he hear? Verses 2 and 3, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures. And the elders, and no one, uh, the four living creatures and the elders, and no one can learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Well, what we hear now as we get into chapters 2 and 3, the speakers of heaven are at maximum volume. It is like the voice of many waters. It's like loud thunder. I mean, I can't help think, since we are gathering with them, and this is what they sound like, I wonder what we sound like in comparison. We read of harpists and We read of the singing of a new song. These are expressions of praise. If you look those things up in the Old Testament of God's victory, they're expressions of praise for God sending his Messiah. So they're they're celebrating that there is a victory and that God has obtained that victory through the sending of his Son. The scene is powerful. And the scene is intimidating. Now, let me just start by saying this in this portion of the message. I'm not saying there isn't a place for more gentle, maybe romantic-sounding and psychologically soothing melodies in worship. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. But what we read here really strikes us as something different. Many years ago, um, I went on a track and field tour in New Zealand, and I lived with a for a while with a Maori family. They're the indigenous people of New Zealand. And I recall being exposed to the rugby haka dance. In that song and dance, it's a song and a dance, a team of powerfully menacing athletes blast their intentions for victory prior to the contest. I mean, you, got, you really need to look it up to get a feel for what I'm talking about. It is amazingly intimidating. And if you're not on the team, you don't join in with them. 
And if you are on the team, it's a demonstration of full commitment. It's a song of battle. I mean, we read in the Bible songs of battle. Thunder. This, this idea of rushing waters and loud thunder. At the risk of going back even further in the World War II classic film, Casablanca, there's a scene where the German occupants are in a club. All right? So just so you get, I don't know if it, it was, the movie was made in the 40s, so this won't be any type of a uh, spoil, spoiler alert, I guess. But, you know, it's in North Africa, it's in Casablanca, you know, and, and the Germans are there, and they've occupied, and the French are there, and there you are, the refugees of, of France. And there's a point in the movie where a group of the Nazis start singing a song, Die Wacht den Rhein. It's a, an old German folk song, you know, and they're all swinging their mugs and singing. And in the movie, you know, the, the, the club that is filled mostly with the refugees are looking at this and realizing... This is just not right. This is wrong. And at great risk, the French refugees in the club counter this with La Marseillaise, which is Marseillaise, which is the French national anthem. And now you have a sing-off. The director, in, you know, not to go too far into this, but the director found it fitting as the French proceeded to outsing the Nazis to show a close-up of a woman who'd been portrayed in the movie as a woman of questionable reputation. It's just a moment in the scene. But in that brief close-up, she sang with the kind of passion, the kind of resolve that could only proceed from someone with a history, someone with a story, someone who recognizes that her current condition was the result of what these evil people had done, and I am recalling right now what things were like before that happened. It was a very touching moment where she's doing this, because you know she's kind of portrayed as a loser, then all of a sudden you realize she's a human being who's under the oppression of darkness. It was a thoughtful scene. Now, Casablanca wasn't a musical. And this scene was not a concert, and it certainly wasn't a sing-along. It was a protest. We're protesting that you're here. And you're going to sing, and we're going to sing louder. Years ago, we had a deacon... Clay Atkinson, who's now gone to be with the Lord. And one Sunday, he was doing the offering. And he said something in his prayer that I don't think I'd ever heard anybody say. He said something to this effect, and it goes along with his, the kind of guy he was. He said, Lord, may this offering be our protest against all that is dark in this world. Now, let me tell you, I'm not suggesting that all of our songs should revolve around battles and protests. But I will say this. Sometimes our battle is against our own lethargic flesh and our protest is to sing with exuberance against that very apathy. Perhaps there's not enough history of behaving like a true Christian to excite our commitment 
as we engage in that worship. I think of that again, that woman thinking about, you know, what has happened. And if, if you come to really recognize what has happened in your life, what has God brought you through? What has he done for you? What has he promised for you in the future? Is this something that you have meditated on through the course of the week, that when we get together and sing and worship, that there's a level of power in your song that goes beyond something that's a mere sing-along as the church gathers together? Or maybe, just maybe, it's because we have a stunted grasp of the holiness of the God who we are worshiping. You see, it speaks of the four living creatures here as well in this passage. Now, I don't know about you, but that beckons me to Isaiah chapter 6. And that is in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is caught up into the throne room of God, that we read of the threefold refrain of the holiness of God. Of the heavenly creatures, they're flying and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's where we get the song inspired from that passage. Matter of fact, most liturgies throughout the course of history have utilized Isaiah chapter 6 as the means by which they put together their order of worship. What do you suppose it sounded like when Isaiah was caught up into the throne room of God and heard the angelic host singing, holy, holy, holy? What do you think that sounded like to him? One thing I've always marveled at in that account is how Isaiah doesn't join in the worship. He's not cut up there and seeing them singing and go, hey, maybe I'll sing with you guys. It would be like me bringing my ukulele and seeking to join in, you know, at the Philharmonic. Hey, I've got a ukulele. You guys need me. But the problem with Isaiah wasn't a lack of skill. That wasn't the real problem. You know, our passage says no one can learn that song except the 144,000. What does that even mean? They couldn't learn the song. I don't take that as some type of learning disability. I think similar to what we read in Isaiah, their lack of ability to engage in true worship is due to their own sinful condition. You can't sing it. You don't know it. These things are, are spiritually appraised. These are things that that the Spirit of God must reveal to you in order for you to even engage in the worship. We see again in Isaiah the way he responds to this celestial worship service. And by the way, this is why we open our worship service with the opportunity to confess our sins and hear the pardon. Because this is what happens with Isaiah when he's brought into the presence of the living God. He says this, and I said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He didn't take comfort in the fact that he might have been better than other people. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Not to get too far into Isaiah chapter 6, but you know what happens next, right? One of the angelic beings takes tongs because it's so holy he can't even touch it, and he goes... And he gets one of the coals from the altar and he touches the lips of Isaiah, which is all a type of Christ. And his sins are purged and his iniquity is taken away. And it is not until then that Isaiah says, here I am, send me. I am ready to work for God. 
The unredeemed person can't sing. The unredeemed person can't worship. The unredeemed person can't truly serve. They must be redeemed. And even in our time of worship, we are reminded on a, on a weekly basis that we need pardon of sin. And then we begin to worship. Of course, the redeemed 144,000, they have learned the song. We generally don't think of worship as a privilege. But I have little doubt that if we were in this throng of worship and incapable of joining in, it would be a time of immense sorrow. For this to be taking place, talk about FOMO. To be missing out, to be there and to be missing out on this worship would cause great sorrow in our hearts. So how is it we can be allowed? How can we be allowed this privilege, this joy of worship? John identifies those who are allowed to worship. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And not to sound cheeky or anything, but this hardly sounds like the easy believism of say a prayer and go to heaven. The identification of those who have been given the pleasure and privilege of singing this new song seems to be laden with attributes of virtue. They are chaste, and they will follow Christ wherever he may lead. There's no deceit in their mouths, and they stand without fault before the throne of God. So you see these wonderful things said about these people. Yet in the midst of these virtues, we read not of something they've achieved, but something achieved for them. We also read they they were redeemed. And they are the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And friends, I'm going to tell you, one would be hard-pressed to find a notion less biblical than the ability for an unregenerate person to stand without fault before the throne of God. Even the idea of virginity in this passage, it is argued by many able commentators, is the result of God's imputed righteousness addressing a spiritual faithfulness over religious adultery. He's not speaking against, he says they're virgins, he's not speaking against marriage. What we're talking about is religious adultery. It's a very common theme in Scripture all through the Old Testament when God's people would depart from them, he would call them people of harlotry, even if they were, hadn't literally committed adultery, they had committed spiritual adultery. And this flows into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. You see, Christ gave himself for his bride, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. These are the ones who've been given the privilege and the joy of worship, those who've been redeemed. 
We have to recognize this because the Bible is not written like a systematic theology. It's not written the way that, you know, you know, some, you know, Charles Hodge might have written things, you know, going, well, this is all sanctification and this is justification and so forth. The Bible doesn't always do that for us. We have to realize this, though, that when the Bible speaks of the people who are saved having virtue, it doesn't teach that they are saved due to the virtue. And I think that's an important distinction to make. That our ability to stand faultless before the throne of God is based upon the blood of Christ and the blood of Christ alone. Yet at the same time, we should never use that liberty, that grace as a license for sin. Let me tell you, any understanding of grace that has somehow informed you that the way you should live should be less obedient than you were under the law is a misunderstanding of grace. If you're under grace, you should be obedient all the more, not all the less. Simply put, what John identifies in this passage are those who've acknowledged and trusted, as we saw today in the member vows, Jesus as Savior and Lord. It is those who, though they may daily face trials of a fallen world and face the trials of a fallen people, discouragement within our own lives, they will be seen by God as those without fault before his throne. with the truth of this firmly planted in the hearts of the readers. They were called to maintain their Christian perseverance through the trials that they were about to go through. And we should seek the same. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, would be open to see the glorious throng of worship that, that heavenly host, and recognizing that when we gather together in worship, we are part of that body. And may, Father, that propel us through our days, through our weeks, through our years, recognizing what has been done for us. And no matter how ominous those threats and forces of darkness seem to be, they have no chance against the Lamb of God upon Mount Zion. His victory is an all-encompassing victory And by his blood and by his grace, he's brought us into his victory. And I do pray, Father, that is true for everybody within the sound of my voice. That they, in fact, would not believe that lamb who speaks as a dragon, but they would believe the lamb of God who speaks that eternal truth of redemption. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen.